it is for toxic stress to to come upon a family, come upon a person, come upon a community, and then the long-term effects that that has. Hey, welcome to What is Black, a podcast where we discuss issues important to raising affirmed, healthy, and thriving Black children, teens, and young adults. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Duget, a board-certified pediatrician, biracial first-generation Black woman, wife, and mom. I hope you're inspired and maybe learn something from the conversation. It takes a village and we're in this together. Hi everyone, this is the last episode of season one of What is Black podcast. I think this will be a memorable episode. On this episode of What is Black, we'll be discussing Ava DuVernay's Netflix documentary, When They See Us. My guests today are a panel of pediatricians and a psychiatrist. This episode was important for me to do because When They See Us is a great tool for fostering conversations about racism as a leading cause of health inequities, an adverse childhood experience, and a cause of toxic stress for black and brown children. Our guests share their reflections about the documentary and opportunities to use the documentary as a conversation for progress. The events that occurred to the young men in this documentary continue today. We see it in the news and especially what is happening on the border with the detention of children and families. We must continue to speak out about injustices and use our collective voices and votes to support our children. In the words of Dr. Martin Luther King, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects us all indirectly. We have um, a special um, panel of guests um, with us today. Um, our first guest is Dr. Baraka Floyd. She's a pediatrician at Stanford School of Medicine and is a co-director of the Peninsula Family Advocacy Program at Stanford Children's Health Medical Legal Partnership. We also have Dr. Frank Clark, who's a board-certified adult psychiatrist in Greenfield, South Carolina. Dr. David Sola who is a pediatrician and also a fellow of sleep medicine at Yale School of Medicine and is also a researcher. And finally, we have Dr. Angela Moameka, um, who is the chief medical officer for Aetna Better Health of Texas and is also a pediatrician. So welcome, everyone, to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. I am I'm grateful that you all um, joined us um, today. So this is this particular episode for um, for our podcast listeners is a little bit different because I typically don't have a have a panel. I've done one prior show with a panel, um, but I thought it would be important to to really get a panel together to talk about the topic we're going to talk about today, which is when they see us. Um, the docu the docu series um, about the exonerated um, five. I know I had an opportunity to see it and really had um, some reactions to it. And I wanted to, I guess, hear from hear from you all what your reactions were. And I'll start with Dr. Floyd. What were your initial reactions to um, to that docu series? You know, initially um, I was numb. Um, it was really emotionally exhausting. Um, and then as I really started to reflect on why it was so emotionally stressful and exhausting for me, um, I was kind of shocked that something like that had taken place. I remembered some of the news coverage, um, but really seeing the background story um, was shocking, for lack of a better description. Um, and then it kind of moved to devastation that this is the reality that we live in. Um, and then it started to kind of drift towards fear that this is reality um, and fear that things like this could be happening and we don't know about them because they're not being covered by the news. I was heartened by the fact that there are different advocacy efforts going on across the country um, to try to combat these things and move the needle and kind of bend the curve in the other direction. The last episode in particular um, was really, really difficult to watch. Um, just knowing that, you know, this is a kid that is in an adult prison um, and knowing developmentally where 16-year-olds are um, and for this child to have to react to adult threats um, and thinking about the effects that that had on him. Um, and then I watched the Oprah special afterwards um, interviewing the um, Exonerated Five and seeing how different he was from the other three who were housed in a juvenile facility um, really solidified for me that this is what it looks like when um, someone endures toxic stress 
um, and aces. Like it's such, um, such a great illustration of that because it is like he was kind of halted um, at 16 in so many ways. Um, I'll stop there so other people can answer too. Okay. Um, so Dr. Clark, if you could share your, your, um, your thoughts. Yes. So I too, um, as Dr. I kind of want to echo what Dr. Floyd said, I, um, Initially, I've watched the docuseries twice now. The the initial time, my wife and I watched it, and I, too, felt numb. Uh, there was some feelings of sadness, fear. But then the second time I watched it, I was uh, the, the main kind of feeling and emotion that came uh, to the forefront of my mind was anger. And it just reinforce that uh, we have a long way to go uh, when it comes to uh, the criminal justice system and the injustices that um, persist uh, in our country. Uh, furthermore, one of the things that the, uh, one of the many things that the docuseries pointed out for me is the, the, the concept of the power dynamic. And we saw that illustrated so beautifully. Well, in, well the, the director, uh, Ava DeBerde, did a good job of illustrating that it was uh, very hard to watch. But this is the power dynamic uh, looking at uh, the police versus uh, Kevin, Corey, Yusuf, uh, Antron, and, and Raymond, and just how cohesion and manipulation can be very powerful. Uh, you're talking about individuals who are teenagers who uh, just wanted to enjoy life. And when watching the series, it also illustrated how just one decision can change a person's life. Uh, you know, I, as I was watching it, I kind of thought about, well, what if they didn't go to the park that night? What would their life be like today? Um, and even though I felt anger and sadness and fear, experienced that throughout the throughout watching the series there were times where i actually felt empowered and inspired and the reasons for that i think are because you know we as advocates um i'm, I'm a psychiatrist by training but i think no matter what specialty you are in medicine or in healthcare, uh, we we still have hope and we 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 want to instill that hope in in um in the patients that we uh, people that we provide care for so while i was definitely um felt angry uh, after watching uh, the series. I, I did it um, periods uh, throughout the series feel empowered and inspired to continue to advocate for a more just system when we're talking about the criminal justice system and also um, providing more education to communities, especially communities of color that have um, endured uh, centuries of um, institutionalized racism. And Dr. Diane Sola, if you can share your your um, your thoughts. So I uh, I want to summarize it in three words, and they're uh, anger, definitely, uh, frustration, and surprisingly for me, guilt. So the anger that I felt, especially in the first episode, was geared towards the justice system and just how unbalanced it is, uh, both against minorities and against kids. And somehow that double disadvantage was synergistic in these cases, making it, you know, almost insurmountable. These kids were unable to advocate for themselves because they were kids, but um, they were unable to have their parents advocate for them because it, there was fear uh, of repercussions. There was poor understanding of the situation. In uh, another situation, uh, there was uh, a language barrier. And just how these uh, difficulties accumulate to tip the, uh, the scale of justice against these kids so overwhelm overwhelmingly. Um, and then my frustration was not geared so much towards the uh, justice system as towards first the media, who very clearly helped inflame uh, this situation. And, you know, I, I started looking back at how uh, this was reported and trying to find the uh, original newspaper articles on this. And, you know, the, they were often not taken into account as children. Um, and the inconsistencies in the, in the stories were barely mentioned, even though they were clearly present. That's the second half of my frustration is that there were people who were advocating for these kids very loudly and clearly. They were saying there is, uh, institutional discrimination, there's institutional racism, uh, they are being tried unfairly, and they were screaming it out 
screaming it outside the courthouses. And despite, you know, these large groups of people and organizations saying it loudly, it just seems to fall on deaf ears, both for the justice system and for the, uh, for the media. And then as far as guilt, that's something that came to me with my, with the, uh, last episode especially, because I have been guilty at times of, uh, looking at a 16, 17 or 18 year old and thinking, wow, uh, uh, this punk really, uh, messed up and, uh, should be tried as an adult. Um, or even looking at adults themselves as, uh, people who might be deserving of punishment. Um, it's something I think every human struggles with because it's a, such a bit, it can be such a visceral reaction to certain types of crime where we want to find somebody who's uh, guilty. But um, my uh, guilt was particularly geared at, you know, I, I've known cases where I've seen similar things in the media um, or even on my newsfeed on Facebook or any social media where people are saying, you know, uh, get their head or um, uh, imprison them, I give them a maximum sentence. Uh, we don't stop to consider whether our... Uh, penitentiaries and the system really rehabilitate people or just work to make things infinitely worse and how we in our expressions and in our actions can actually make it more difficult for these individuals to come out and find a job and be emotionally and psychiatrically stable. And I guess that, that summarizes uh, my general feelings when I saw the, the, Theories. I I would like to see it a second time, but I think it's been such a roller coaster of emotions that I need to kind of cool down, talk about it a bit more, and discuss it with more people before I really have the energy to sit down and watch it again. And Dr. Morneka, where were your thoughts? So uh, it's interesting. My thoughts came um, from two angles. I'm, I'm going to focus on one because I know we're going to talk about the, the other angle a little bit later. Um, I had just a deep and overwhelming sadness watching it. Um, I think someone had mentioned earlier thinking about what could have been. Uh, I, I really applaud the director because clearly the series was made. I mean, it's a, it's a story, and there have been other um, documentaries made about the, these, these children who are now adults. But this miniseries was created so that we we as the audience could go through the journey with not just the children but the families and their mothers and their fathers um, and really experience toxic stress as it happens um, and experience the, the influences that are both negative influences towards toxic, toxic stress and the positive influences and I, I applaud the director for doing that um, and, and not allowing people to be disengaged and say, oh, this horrible thing happened to those people, but to really feel like you were living it with them. Um, but that, that's the one thing that, that came to me as I watched it was the feeling when one of the boys was sitting, having you know, fast food with his dad and just having a normal morning like any other day. Um, and they made it that any other day, any person could be your child, could be your family, um, could be your situation, and then brought it into the tragedy of what is happening. And I think without going too far into it, it, it really speaks to the, the ACES project where it's not about being poor. It's not about being on Medicaid. It's not about being on welfare. It's not about even race and ethnicity. It's about in any given moment, you could be faced with repetitive and continuous negative influences that lead to long-term impact. And especially when you're faced with these in your most formative years, they then go on to create long-term impact. And if nothing else, um, that message resounded throughout the series, and, and that's what I took from it, was just this profound sadness over how easy it is for toxic stress to, to come upon a family, come upon a person, come upon a community, and then the long-term effects that that has. Thank you. Thank you all for sharing, um, sharing your reflections about the series. And I think, for me, that's the reason why I wanted to have have you all, you know, representative of, of 
you know, kids doctors as well as um, a, mental, a mental health professional um, in the discussion because I think what you all, I think, illustrate so beautifully, and, and I think that's the one piece I think I, that I missed in the discussion and the reflection of when they, us, when they see us is the fact that they were, they were kids, right? They were kids when they were incarcerated. And as you said, Dr. Momeka, the illustrate, you know, that they really, that, that, that series really provided, you know, evidence of what toxic stress does, right? So I just want, so I just want to follow up a little bit about focusing on the, focusing on the youth aspect, right? The young men as opposed to, as opposed, as opposed to them as adults now. So I was wondering your thoughts about and I can, and I'll start with, um, I'll actually, I'll start with um, Dr. Dr. Clark with this question about the depictions of black and brown youth in the 90s, right, compared to modern depictions and realities of youth of color now. Do you think, do you think that the series did a good job of, I guess, illustrating that, or, and are there, do you think there, there are similarities or too similar um, 90s and even modern day? Um, issues that uh, black and brown, um, especially male youth, have to face. I definitely think the series illustrated it well, and I think there are similarities. You know, unfortunately, history tends to repeat itself, and the black and brown youth in the 90s, uh, I would say we haven't learned uh, as a society uh, from from um, the impacts that um, racism and how this individuals back in the 90s were, were depicted. I think we're still seeing um, kind of a hangover, so to speak. I think that may be the best word to use, a hangover um, into um, 2019. We're still seeing evidence of how, um, and I, as a black male, I, I see it every day, um, and it's, it's, um, it's horrific. I mean, you know, I, I think about some of the terms that... Um, um, the uh, district attorney, uh, I think, was played by Felicity Hoffman, used in, uh, in the docuseries of referring to um, the, the, the or the kids as thugs and animals, and we even see that maybe in modern day. Uh, sometimes we, uh, as black, uh, black and brown youth, are, refer are referred to as super predators, and, and what does that mean? And and, and so I, I think that the, the series did a good job of, of depicting. Um, black and brown youth, um, not only the 90s, but I think, again, there's still a hangover that we see today in, in 2019, and, um, you know, we still have mass incarceration of uh, black and brown youth. We still have, um, if we're talking about modern day, we probably have more police shootings um, involving uh, black and brown youth. And when we talk about, you know, maybe why that is, it's multifactorial. Some of that uh, stems from uh, fear. I, I think the, the title of this docuseries is, is on, on point, I will say, is when they see us and um, what happens when they see us and it does, what, what, um, what emotions are, um, are evoked in the people who don't look like us. And I think, you know, if we're still portrayed as thugs and animals and super predators, um, we, we can see the downstream effects, and they happen to be very negative, and there's consequences to that. Some of that uh, ends in fatal outcomes, and some have, can have longer-lasting effects. Um, going back to what, what some of the other panelists talked about in terms of the adverse childhood experiences. So those are my thoughts. I wanted to share, I think most people have seen that the Procter & Gamble they released a, a really short ad uh, called The Look. I don't know if you've seen that, but it's it's very um it's very move it's very moving it's very striking and it speaks about it's actually the the, the very it solidifies when they see us it, it basically follows um, a young black man who's a father follows him from when he wakes up in the morning um, gets up takes his son to school um, stops to get something to eat he takes his son to swim lessons. And then it, you watch as people react to him in, diff in these different situations. And it's really you, you're him, right? You're, you're him, and there's the camera angle, and you're watching the reactions that people have, have as he's doing all these things. And then finally, the final thing is he walks into a courtroom, um, and all these people rise, and then the camera turns, and you realize he's the judge, right? So he's, he's someone of significant stature 
but so what I, I got out of that ad wasn't so much, oh, you can be a judge and still be discriminated against and people can look at you differently. What I got from it was you go through your entire day exhausted from having to from being the person you are. There's nothing you can do. This is actually who you are every day. But when you put on the costume of who people respect because of a job, because of a title, then suddenly from the exact same demographic of people, you suddenly get respect. And that, to me, spoke to something more crushing than even the movie. It said that even when you have all the opportunities, even when everything goes right, you, you don't go to the park that night. You, you excel in school, like one of the boys did. You get to Harvard, you go to law school, you go to medical school, nothing changes, right? So there's still a, a perception of you as a black or brown boy, now man, that something is off. Um, and I had this conversation with someone on Facebook and I said, the world is colorblind. We have moved beyond color in, in, in 2019. We don't see color anymore. We replace color with adjectives. Nobody sees a black man. They see a dangerous criminal, a, a poor person, um, someone to avoid, someone who will um, harm them. That's what they see. They no longer see color. And when they see a white person or someone of white descent, they think of wealth and cleanliness and education and intelligence. So we've moved to this, this very frightening colorblindness in, in the United States and possibly outside the United States where the depictions have gone from where it was black, brown, white to it's now adjectives and we're just being seen as people's perceptions. And as I, I always say, perceptions lead to actions, actions lead to policies, and policies are what create disparities. And that's where we are now. We're at the point where these perceptions are creating significant health disparities for, for individuals as children, as adults, that they have nothing, no hand in creating themselves. I think both, both Dr. Floyd and Dr. Moameka, you've, and also and Dr. Clark as well, mentioned um, the, the experiences that these young men, these young men, um, had right um, being incarcerated, the, the interactions with the police as adverse childhood experiences, and I would and I was wondering if you all could speak a little bit more as to the connection with their experience to adverse childhood experiences and how that how that does impact um, the development and the health and well being, even mental health of youth. Um, I think one of the um, I'm going to use Corey as an example. Um, one of the things that we see um, so often is kids who have been um, exposed to ACEs is it really affects their memory and their learning. Um, so when kids are under constant stress um, as a child who's been exposed to adverse childhood events, it changes the part of the brain that creates memories and stores memories because you release um, the stress hormones so much. Um, and what that results in is learning and memory problems. Um, and so you can imagine if you aren't able to learn and remember as well, that affects your ability to be able to excel in school. Then that also affects your ability to be able to go to trade school or be able to go to college or be able to get a good job or be able to function on your job. So then that's going to affect you financially. Um, and then your ability to be able to pull yourself out of poverty, et cetera, et cetera, and move forward in that way. Um, so the other way in which that um, affects you is it also affects your prefrontal cortex, the part of your brain that um, regulates your, um, it does a lot of the planning stuff. Um, and also um, regulate your emotions. Um, so when I think about um, Corey and um, the outbursts that he had um, when he was in solitary confinement, um, one of the things that came to my mind at that moment was this is all of the trauma that he's endured while he's been in prison, basically bursting out in the form of 
um, in the form of an outburst. Um, and then seeing him on stage with the other men um, and seeing that he basically was dressed like a teenager. Um, and then everybody else was kind of dressed like more like an adult. Um, it was seeing that it's like his development or maturation was kind of halted um, at 16. Um, a lot of times when you see um, adults that have been exposed to ACEs, they have a lot of trouble with planning. Um, in terms of being able to plan out their day or contingency plan. So when one thing goes wrong, it's like, I'm just giving up. I'm not going to do anything else because I don't really know what to do. Um, and mental health issues that you can see are, there's a huge broad spectrum. So it can be anything from just mild behavior issues um, to things that, like PTSD and depression and anxiety. And then when you think about black and brown folks, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness. So even if a person's having those types of problems, a lot of times they don't mention them. So you're walking around dealing with anxiety, depression, or PTSD or whatever issue it is, um, and you're not getting the help and support that you need. Um, and when you superimpose that on whatever um, changes have been made to the, your brain structure, um, it makes it that much more difficult um, to be successful um, and to function and enjoy your life and your environment. Um, as much as you could without those exposures. And I just want to follow up with, with what, you, what you just said, Dr. Floyd, the, it, the issue of um, the mental health impact of ACEs and toxic stress. Because I remember, I, I, didn't, I didn't see Oprah Winfrey, I listened to it, um, her podcast, um, her discussion with the Exonerated Five, and I don't remember which, um, which gentleman had mentioned that I think Oprah asked, asked, asked a couple of them, and maybe it was Corey, but I don't remember exactly, about whether or not they sought help, right, mental health. And I think mm -hmm. one of them mentioned, no, I haven't. I know I have issues, but I'm dealing with it. Yeah, that was, go ahead. that was Antron, the one whose um, dad told him to lie at the police station. So, and I was just wondering if... If that tends to if that tends to be tends to be the case with and I guess it's also an illustration right of the effect of toxic stress is it is it because of the culture that you know that's sort of ingrained in us that we don't we don't seek mental health but there's a stigma with mental health or is it that he was so traumatized that it, it he can't even he can't even talk about it I don't know if maybe think, Dr. Clark can talk about it but but go ahead Dr. Floyd I think from my experience and practice I think it's a combination. Um, of access because a lot of times access to um, mental health support that um, culturally appropriate and structurally appropriate is hard to find. Um, and then I think stigma is a big problem in black and brown communities. Um, and I do think being able to rehash some of the issues that you're dealing with is fearful. Um, a lot of people are fearful of doing that. Um, so I think that's also another barrier. And for most families that I've worked with, it tends to be a combination of all of it. Um, the other part that plays in is the historic distrust that we have of the medical system that's really not unfounded, um, that often comes up and creates a very issue. I'll circle back to the, to the dis uh, further discussion, another question I have about mental health consequences of adverse experiences. But I wanted to go back and just ask Dr. Um, Dr. Dian Sola, a question, you know, you, you talked about um, the guilt that we can experience, right? Because sometimes when we see, when we see young adults, um, teenagers, especially these young men, right? They, most of their, in some instances, you know, there are studies that show that um, kids of color, especially men of color, tend to, tend to be, people think that they are older than they are. And so I wonder if that has an effect with their interactions with the legal and justice system. So I was just wondering what your thoughts were about how the series really, really showcased that institutional racism kind of so, impacting those kids with the, with the justice legal system. So um, I do think that there is an immediate difference in perception when you're talking about a black or brown kid and that immediate uh, difference in perception can come as soon as you see the person yes and you might think they're older but I mean there have been experiments where you um, and here I'm speaking with my Latin background where you uh, put two resumes that are exactly the same and you put a name that sounds 
um, ethnic in, in this case, like uh, Jose Rodriguez versus Joe Smith. And Joe Smith will get callbacks for their resume much more often than Jose Rodriguez. So just the name itself elicits different reactions and makes the uh, people be treated differently. I think we can see it in not just the justice system, but even everyday interactions. So I think what it uh, tells us is how the media, the justice system, and the uh, uh, racism is something that happens every, in every day-to-day basis and boils down to intimacy as well. That's one area where I don't think we've touched enough so far. Um, I like very much how they, uh, gosh, I forget his name, but for uh, the Latin kid, 13-year-old who got uh, uh, imprisoned, one of the big uh, uh, points of the storyline is how he tried to get intimacy after he came out, and he was unable to do it because of his background. And those aspirations with this partner that he found were what prompted him to try to you know, cheat the system and uh, try to get away with drug trafficking. Coming from Puerto Rico, drug trafficking tends to be very common among the youth who can't find any other way of advancing that really spoke to me. And that is palpable today as it was in the 80s, as it was in the 90s, and as it's been probably for as long as my own parents can remember. Have any of you had experiences where you've had conversations with patients or maybe your kids or family members about the, their, their reactions to, um, to when they see us? A lot of the parents of the kids who look, uh, uh, you know, more brown and more ethnic tell me that, you know, this is something I want to watch with my kids, but I don't know how to present it to them at their 13, 14, or 15 years of age uh, in a way that I can both make it relevant and not traumatize them or give them fear of going forth, because there has to be a balance between trying to empower these people and trying to uh, give them uh, healthy caution regarding the system around them. And I can, and I can relate to that as well. I mean, I have um, two sons. Um, one's, a, one's a little bit older, almost 21, and the other one is still in high school. And I did have, I did have those concerns, or I did have those concerns about watching, watching the series with, so I watched it with my, with my younger son who's in high school, and just, you know, the, and the initial reaction after watching even the first and second, third, and especially the fourth episode, right? He didn't say anything at first. But then with a little bit more, you know, a little bit, I guess, more time to reflect on that, on the episode, I think the fourth episode really hit him. And it was amazing to hear his reflection of why that, that particular episode was so, so compelling for him, right? And so, I mean, it disturbed him just, and I think rightfully so, just like myself and my husband, it, you know, we all watched it together. So I think I think what you're saying is I can I can relate to that, and I was wondering if any of any other any of the other guests, if you all have similar similar experiences. I know I think you've all said yes. You've spoken to other people about their reflections on the on the docu series. I was wondering if you you know if anyone else would like to share. Yeah. So I I um my son is, is just turned 14, and I wavered back and forth on showing it to him. He he's. And I think it's going to be a personal decision, and this is a discussion I've had with others as well, is you have to know your child and know um, how to approach it in terms of having them see it, because it is meant to incite emotion. There's there's no doubt about it. I already said it, the director did a phenomenal job in that, um, having you walk through the journey. The, the the main conversations I've had with, with about it are with my brother, so I have five brothers who are removed here from Nigeria and all of them have had experiences that were significantly shocking to them, right? So moving from, talk about toxic stress, moving from a country where you were not the minority um, and nobody ever mentioned that you were black, it just was not a, a conversational thing that you said, um, to coming here to, you know, the Northeast. And I, I say, I joke to people, but it's not really joking. I said my first few years here, I had to keep reminding myself that I was black because things would happen and I would be completely confused. And why did that person react to that? Oh, I can't have that kind of reaction. So we had, um, we had this, I had the conversation with them about the movie and 
one of the things, the, the central thing for all of my brothers was, first, they didn't want to watch it because they felt it would make them very angry. But secondly, they, it didn't so much, they, it wasn't the sadness, it was that they could um, sympathize because they had been through in, interactions with the justice system from, you know, just driving your car or, or sitting in a parking lot or, or being out in the park at, at the wrong time of night. They had interactions that were very concerning and challenging for them and confusing for them, coming right coming from another country where we don't have these types of interactions. Um, so when they watched that movie, it really created a lot of gut, very visceral type of um, feelings for them. Because they, in their situation, they didn't, right, they didn't get into that level of complication and, and being moved beyond what, what it really was, but it could have, right? They, that, and I think that's the challenge that they have is that as, as black men, you come into these situations more often than not over the course of your life. And these boys just happened to hit a trifecta when this happened to them. And that was very challenging, I think, for my brothers to watch and to think, this could have happened to me. I've been in a situation that could have escalated in this way. Um, so that, that was the conversation that we had, and it was, it was interesting to, to compare it to my, my reaction. Okay, so I'm going to circle back to to a you know a brief discussion um, about mental health consequences, right? Because it's, it's definitely obvious that there are there were mental health consequences for these young men based on their experiences. And I want to direct the question first to you, um, Dr. Clark, you know, since you are a resident psychiatrist on the panel today, and what your thoughts were about how, and, and I think there are two things, right? There, there the, there's the mental health consequences that the youth experienced, the exonerated five experienced, but from also what I'm hearing from, from you all and even my experience, there's also, I think, a mental health consequence, right, or reaction from even watching the series and even addressing, you know, the themes that are, that are brought up in the series. And I was just wondering um, how, how as a parent, you know, you're a parent as well, and as a professional, how do you, how, how would you help parents sort of unpack those, the, the mental health issues experienced by the exonerated five, by the, by the, by the individuals in the, in the series, and also how, how they themselves or their children may, be, may react as a result of watching the series and, and unpacking the themes of, this, of the series? So it's... <laughs> As a as a parent of a six month old daughter who will not watch this for quite some time, um, you know it's it, it is traumatic in a lot of ways. And um, what I find is that um, it, it can be difficult to have the conversations um, with with children in terms of being a parent and how do you unpack um, four hours of. Um, content that uh, does invoke a lot of emotion and, and that, um, you know, when I, when I think about docu-series like when they feel or other um, series that we've seen that addresses these, these issues, I, to me, it, it definitely has a psychological impact on the community. And so I think it's important whether you're a parent um, or, or not a parent, but uh, especially parents who, when, when you're trying to talk to your children about these issues, um, you, you want to be transparent, but you also want to meet your uh, children where they are. And, you know, it's different. It, you, you're probably going to address things a little differently to a 13 or 14 year old than you would a 30 year old. But, um, and then I think it's also important too, as the parent to, if, if you are experiencing any type of reaction, which which we all did it, um, on the panel, um, to to a series like this, is to kind of uh, acknowledge it um, first, and then uh, also talk to someone who you can confide into um, about your feelings, because um, it, it sometimes you, um, I think one of the panelists mentioned, you do become dumb, dumb, excuse me, and almost kind of this desensitization, uh, desensitization that goes, um, that, that people can experience, and so I think it's important to not let these things fester. 
because I find that you know, we're talking about mental health, mental health consequences. Oftentimes, if uh, individuals, if we allow ourselves to internalize these feelings, then all of a sudden, you know, one day they just kind of erupt into this uh, and kind of burst like a balloon because we haven't been able to uh, to discuss how we're feeling. And, and we see that, I, I know one of the panelists alluded to um, just uh, stigma in general uh, in the black and brown communities. Uh, I find that um, the I probably see more women of color um, in terms of providing care than I do men of color. And, um, you know, there's multiple reasons for that that were already alluded to in terms of stigma, the distrust of uh, the uh, black and brown community uh, with healthcare going back to the Tuskegee syphilis experiment and other um, things that we know that have happened in the past to um, our communities. But I, I think it's important that we have the conversations. Um, I think if parents are somewhat reluctant or they may not know how to start the conversation, there are, there are plenty of resources um, from reputable medical organizations that have toolkits to talk about trauma and how to talk to your kids about um, if they witness trauma or bullying uh, that, that goes on uh, that's pretty rampant these days or if they're watching the show that does evoke uh, a lot of mixed emotions, um, there, there's definitely resources out there. But I think the first thing is, the first impor- most important thing is to have the conversation and not um, and not um, kind of um, avoid it um, because once we have the conversation then that opens up the doors for other conversations and you know at the end of the day we're trying to create sustainable healthy communities and in order for us to do that especially in, in our black and brown communities which we already know have a sort of life expectancy compared to our um, uh, white communities uh, we have to have these conversations um, stigma kills um, and so in order to dissolve the stigma uh, we first have to um, tackle it head on and, and acknowledge that this happens in our communities every day uh, whether it be violence or exposure to violence or, or trauma we, we definitely need to talk about it Thank you um, Dr. Clark I guess before before we wrap up I wanted to just get, you know, your final reflections on how do you think the series can be used as a tool um, to advance conversations about racism and equities, and also, you know, we briefly touched on um, black and brown youth interactions with um, police. Um, I think that the series can be used um, as a tool in a couple of ways. Um, I think all of the panelists have talked about how it really illustrates um, how structural racism can have such negative effects um, on black and brown children. Um, And I think for people who don't understand how structural racism works and how it can affect people, um, it really grounds this in a story to evoke emotion, um, just as um, our other panelists said. The second part of the question you were asking about policing, is that right? Yes. I think the thing that I have been starting to think about a little bit more after watching these theories um, in terms of an action item, we do a lot of work with our immigrant families around having a preparedness plan for like, if you get picked up by ICE, what's going to happen to your children? Um, So one of the things I've been thinking a little bit more about um, is because of the realities um, that we face in terms of the discrepant treatment of children that are black and brown is thinking about whether or not both really trying to make sure that we're thinking about positive buffers for these children, um, but also grounding ourselves in reality and whether or not trying to think about having preparedness plans for families um, so that if people land in situations like what these young men did, um, that there are things in place for families so that it's not a moment of panic because you never know when things like this are going to happen just like we've all kind of talked about um and really teaching and kind of reinforcing what children's rights are um and how um, to interact with police um, when they encounter them and i'll go next with dr moa mecca thanks and i I thought about this a little bit you know when whenever you see a movie that's so powerful you and then you see it on Facebook, you think, how can we make this more constructive? Um, I think it, it ends up being a conversation starter. I mean, a very bold one. Um, and in, in communities, various communities, I think this may be 
a good um, a good way to bring a community together to start a conversation around um, racism as a health equity issue and racism as an adverse childhood experience um, and a tough express. And that's really where where I took what I took out of the movie was absolutely it was showing you the, the trajectory that was happening. But the, the true crux of it was really at the point that they, this toxic stress began and all the different insults and injuries that happened to these kids um, throughout the period, even just, in, just encountering the police. If they had left that, 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 that police station without being arrested, that in itself would have had some long-term consequences to them. And being able to begin that conversation in a non-confrontational way to say, this isn't about us versus them, you versus me. It's about a community and how we, we realize that it's not the people, it's the system. And the systems, again, going back to my mantra as always, it begins with perception. Those perceptions lead to the actions. The actions are what leads to policies, and the policies are what are, developed, are creating the kind of system that allows for toxic stress, that allows for erosion of social determinants of health, that allows for health equity, inequity, um, and that allows for ACEs to thrive. Because ACEs can't thrive where there's strong social determinants of health built into the community, where the community is fully entrenched in a system that, that allows for social justice you don't get ACEs thriving. ACEs are, are, are more a symptom of a breakdown within the system and within the community. Um, so, so to me, this is an opportunity to take this not just as a Netflix series that comes and then eventually comes off of Netflix and nobody talks about it on uh, Facebook anymore or on social media, but to actually challenge our community leaders, our community organizations to use it as conversation starters to really bring communities together around this topic. I think it's very hard to use um, documentaries as uh, tools for change because this information that is being received passively, um, it can certainly serve as a fuel uh, to call people to action and to arms. But the problem with documentaries is precisely what uh, uh, was just mentioned, that they can come on Netflix, they leave, and then nobody talks about them. So in that pers- from that perspective, I think it's challenging um, to use them for change or to uh, you know, use them for impact. So we really have to consider how we can use this as a fuel uh, to improve the lives of all the brown and black kids and ultimately of society. So... One, uh, two things that I've tried to do after watching this has been to bring uh, the discussion on the criminal justice system uh, more into view, because the fact is part of the problem for these kids is not just that they were convicted when they were innocent, but also that they were sent to places that offer them no opportunities for their future and then sent back to the streets with limited opportunities for their future because now this is on their permanent record. And I think we have, these are things that we can target without too much difficulty. Do we really want um, anybody who has a conviction on record to be unable to find a job once they go out, to be unable to um, uh, move freely if need be outside of the city that has tagged them as somebody who is, you know, uh, deserving of marginalization. Um, and then the other thing that uh, uh, I've actually uh, been able to do has been with other Latin groups and Latin doctors trying to use this as a fuel to tell people, you know, these are problems that are happening that are very real and that are very palpable today. And one thing that keeps getting underreported, underemphasized, and has, you know, lacking action is the immigrant crisis at the border right now. These are children being separated from their parents. That will, This is a, uh, adverse uh, childhood events that are happening right now um, that we can do something about, not just call our government to action, but actively call in, offer our resources. If we speak Spanish, serve it in translation, go over as doctors to make recommendations, evaluate these kids, send um, uh, medications, and educate the officers who are treating these kids into how to deal with children. Because, again, these are officers that are meant to or have been trained uh, to deal mostly with adults or criminals. Um, simple things like trying to not make it a criminal offense 
to go across the board to gain asylum would go a long way. So I think theories such as this um, should embolden us to continue to uh, have these conversations in different venues. One of the things that I find um, that is important, especially when we're talking about uh, ACEs or mental health, is that you know I find that again the likelihood that uh, a black black and brown youth are going to come seek help is pretty rare for all the um, reasons mentioned. So um, I think it's important to go um, to the different arenas or different venues to, to have these conversations. And so for me, those include barbershops, faith communities, and, and hair salons to, um, to spread the word, to increase and enhance a person's knowledge and understanding of how systemic racism, um, how injustice in the criminal justice system can impact not only the individual, the family, but the communities that we serve. And so um, I think it is important um, not to just say, okay, well, this is a great Netflix series. And um, like the other panelists said, okay, well, um, we'll just kind of sweep this under the, uh, the rug and it won't be talked about for a while. We, we have to keep the conversation going. So I hope that um, people in our communities, uh, medical professionals, and it doesn't just be medical professionals. I, I think other people, um, other thought leaders in the communities can help galvanize this conversation and and make it to the point where um, it, it, it stays in the forefront of people's minds and hearts so that, again, we can continue to be resilient. We can, t- we can continue to be encouraged and empowered that even though progress has been slow, um, we still have a ways to go, but we we can we things will things will change. But again, I think we we have to continue this conversation. So I, I, my my charge to um, individuals across this country and, 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 and communities would be to continue to have these conversations. You know, it, it, it doesn't take much. It, it, you don't need, even need funding. If, if you belong to a, a mosque, a synagogue, a church, whatever it may be, a, a sports team, whatever it may be, try to have a, a forum where people feel comfortable in talking about these issues. It doesn't always have to be at the at the hospital or at the clinic. Uh, there, there, there are other ways to, to have these conversations and for them to be meaningful. So those would be my final take-home points. Thank you so much for um, each and every one of you for being a guest today on the show. I think um, this has been a great discussion, and you all um, show show the importance of um, the role that healthcare providers can have to advocate for kids. So thank you so much. Thank you all for listening. I really appreciate the support for the first season. I'm going to take a little pause to plan for season two, which will air in early 2020, but we'll be checking in from time to time with some bonus content. Please stay in contact via social media. I'd love to keep the conversation going and I'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at What is Black at W-H-A-T-I-S-B-L-K. If you're an Apple Podcast listener, please subscribe, rate, and review. I can't wait to talk to you all soon.